welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. What a fun week of immigration decisions. And short, too. Only three to discuss, although they're definitely complicated. Also, in case you missed it, there was a very favorable settlement in the TPS context, Central American Resource Center v. USCIS. Check it out. It seems that you might be able to get removal proceedings dismissed or reopened and dismissed for certain TPS holders who traveled and returned to the U.S. on advanced parole and are now prima facie eligible to adjust to LPR status. It's a bit more complicated than that, so give it a read, but definitely good stuff. Finally, I'd be remiss not to mention that this is episode 100 of the podcast. My God, I truly can't believe it. 100 episodes was only a dream when I started this thing with my wife Kim at the onset of the pandemic, banging pots and pans for nurses and watching with excitement as the downloads trickled in. Over the course of 100 episodes, I've come to have a love-hate relationship with the circuits and with the podcast, but it's mostly love. And I'm beyond honored for all the listens. So I'm going to keep going. Suggestions are always welcome. Here's to 100 more. First is Syed v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on March 24th, 2022. I thought I was going to start off this centennial week with the 4th Circuit's wonderful case, to come, until the 11th Circuit published this gem on Thursday. Vindication, and it feels so sweet. This case is about marijuana and the realistic probability test. And burdens. And it's in the relief context. And Judge Choflat. Mr. Syed is a lawful permanent resident, but he was convicted for possession of marijuana in violation of Florida Statute Section 893.136A. Unsure if this was the only conviction he had, and unsure if this is what made him removable, but he applied for cancellation of removal for lawful permanent residents under INA Section 240A-A. 
The immigration judge and the BIA determined that the marijuana conviction barred him from obtaining this relief because the conviction constitutes a violation of a law relating to a controlled substance under immigration law. And the reason's really a bit more nuanced. An LPR must have been an LPR for at least five years and held any lawful status for at least seven years to qualify for LPR cancellation. But commission of an offense that matches the inadmissibility provision for violating a law relating to a controlled substance stops the accrual of years as a matter of law. So if the conviction matches the definition used at the inadmissibility provision for having violated a law relating to a controlled substance, Mr. Syed doesn't have his five or possibly seven years, even though he's technically held LPR status for a long time. Whatever. The crime does not constitute a violation of a law relating to a controlled substance, said the 11th Circuit. The categorical approach applies to the inquiry. And, as explained in episode 46 of the podcast when the 8th Circuit addressed the exact issue in Gonzalez v. Wilkinson, Florida law criminalizes possession of all parts of the marijuana plant, including the seeds, stalks, and stems, for example, while federal law expressly excludes those portions from the federal definition of marijuana. That means that Florida's marijuana possession law is broader than the federal definition, because Florida criminalizes more conduct. In this case, possession of more things. So unless Florida's definition of marijuana is itself divisible, that is, that possession of different parts of the plant equate to different criminal offenses, the modified categorical approach can't apply, and Florida Statute Section 893.136a can't match the definition of the inadmissibility provision for having violated a federal law relating to a controlled substance. Surprise, surprise, Florida does not criminalize possessing separate parts of the plant differently. That would be a bit absurd. And no one argues that Florida does. So case closed, right? Well, yes in the 8th Circuit, and yes in the 11th Circuit, because under its 2013 Ramos decision and Ramos's progeny, if the statutory text itself answers the question, here the text of Florida's marijuana definition, the categorical approach is over. But the BIA doesn't or at least didn't like that, and so in matter of Guadarrama, it held that even if a statute is overbroad, a non-citizen must still find a case showing an overbroad application. Here, for example, that Florida criminalizes possession of marijuana seeds or stocks. Matter of Guadarrama involved the same Florida statute as that at issue here and in the Eighth Circuit. And matter of Guadarrama arose in Florida, so Ramos should have controlled. The only reason the BIA was able to reach its contrary holding is because it believed that Ramos was no longer good law in the 11th Circuit. But, as I have meticulously documented in the podcast for two years now, Ramos is good law in the 11th Circuit, and Matter of Guadarrama is wrong. And finally, the 11th Circuit has directly said so on the exact same issue. Ramos remains good law to this day. A Kurzban law firm case, by the way. Rejoice. This remains the case despite that pesky portion of the Supreme Court's decision in Moncrief v. Holder, because, as the 11th Circuit explained in Asvelar v. U.S. Attorney General, episode 50 of the podcast, that Moncrief language was dicta. And heck, the 11th Circuit implicitly affirmed all of this two months ago in Chamu. Told you. And this remains the case, even though the 11th Circuit held in Gulan v. U.S. Attorney General in 2018 that Section 893.136a is divisible as to the identity of the substance involved. For example, maybe as between marijuana and heroin, 
But that doesn't mean that marijuana is itself divisible, or that the modified categorical approach can apply to the inquiry. The BIA can't look to the conviction documents to see what part of the marijuana plant Mr. Saeed was convicted of possessing. Statutes must be relevantly divisible for the modified categorical approach to apply. That is, divisible as to the portion that makes the statute overbroad vis-a-vis a removable offense. If you had any doubt and don't want to take my word for it, and while the realistic probability test from Duenas Alvarez always applies, it's just a different way of saying the same thing. Quote, a litigant can use facially overbroad statutory text to meet the burden of showing the realistic probability that the state law covers more conduct than the federal. End quote i.e., Florida's definition of marijuana creates that realistic probability in and of itself. Case closed. Finally. And it's closed because the BIA and IJs cannot apply the categorical approach in a circuit contrary to how the circuit applies it. How many non-citizens in Florida have been wrongfully ordered removed because Guadarrama misread 11th Circuit case law? Give me your tired, your poor, and your huddled motions to reopen, yearning to be granted. Seriously, email address in the show notes. And all of this was in the relief context, by the way, but the 11th Circuit could care less about burdens. And that's because it's a legal inquiry, rather than an evidentiary one. Looking at you, Pareda. Congratulations, counsel, who I'm told is David Stoller from Orlando. Rock on. And a bit more to be completely clear. Back to Chamu from episode 92, that cocaine isomer case. Why the difference? The difference was, said the 11th Circuit, that even though the statute appeared overbroad because it appeared to cover more types of cocaine in Chamu, it actually didn't. Quote, the petitioner did not offer any proof that cocaine had the type of stereoisomer not covered by federal law. End quote. Chamu rested on evidentiary burdens and resulted in the 11th Circuit believing that actually the federal government and the state of Florida criminalized the same types of cocaine. Not so here. The federal government clearly excludes, for example, marijuana stocks from the definition. And everybody knows, or can imagine, what marijuana stocks are. Don't let DHS confuse the issue. Quote, Unlike in Chamu, in which the petitioner presented a hypothetical form of cocaine covered by state but not federal law to attempt to establish overbreath, the stocks of the marijuana plant do exist. End quote. If you say so, Judge Joe Flat. And that is Syed, the U.S. Attorney General. Next is Tazu, the Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit way back in 2020. So right, this one was actually published in September of 2020. I didn't do it at the time because it's not a petition for review case. It's a habeas decision that arose in district court. And particularly during all that litigation occurring in immigration in 2020, I didn't do many of these. But this one is special, because Ira Kurzban himself, the man, the myth, and the legend, has suggested that I discuss it, and it's quite interesting. Ira came across it as he prepares for the 18th edition of his sourcebook, so you can be sure that the decision made the upcoming sourcebook as well. Mr. Tazu is from Bangladesh and entered the U.S. without authorization in 1993. He applied for asylum soon after, which an immigration judge ultimately denied. 
The IJ granted Mr. Tazu's alternative application for voluntary departure, but even after his appeal was dismissed by the BIA, Mr. Tazu never departed. That resulted in the voluntary departure grant turning into a final order of removal, which ICE tried to execute in 2009. Mr. Tazu was brought to the plane and everything, but the airline wouldn't let him on because his passport had expired. ICE eventually released Mr. Tazu from detention after the Bangladesh consulate informed ICE that it was unlikely that Mr. Tazu would be issued travel documents from Bangladesh anytime soon. And so, for 10 more years, Mr. Tazu lived in the U.S. He always appeared for his ICE supervised release appointments, and he raised three U.S. citizen children. One of his children eventually turned 21 years old, and so, Mr. Tazu decided to begin the consular processing process, which would require that he leave the U.S., sit for an interview abroad, and come back to the U.S. as an LPR. But all of that would make him very inadmissible first. So, assuming that USCIS approved that I-130 for his benefit filed by his U.S. citizen son, Mr. Tazu would need an I-212 waiver to get around the removal order bar, and then a Form I-601A waiver due to the bar stemming from his unlawful presence in the U.S. Immigration law is not for the faint of heart. All of that takes time, and Mr. Tazu's ran out because he decided to embark on this whole process in 2017, right around the time that presidential administrations changed in the U.S. The I-130 was approved. Mr. Tazu's son was, after all, over 21 years old and a U.S. citizen. But before Mr. Tazu could file an I-212 waiver, ICE received Mr. Tazu's new Bangladeshi passport and decided to detain him for removal. So Mr. Tazu sued in the U.S. District Court for the District of New Jersey, bringing a habeas action to obtain his release from detention and stay his removal pending the waiver application process. He also filed a motion to reopen those removal proceedings from all those years ago, alleging that he had been the victim of ineffective assistance of counsel. If that motion had been granted, he couldn't be removed until those proceedings were resolved. And indeed, if he had ultimately succeeded on a new asylum claim, he wouldn't need to consular process at all. But nothing worked. The district court denied his habeas action, USCIS denied the I-212 waiver, and the BIA denied the motion to reopen. And without an I-212 waiver, by the way, Mr. Tazu can't even file for an I-601A waiver. Mr. Tazu therefore petitioned for review the denial of the motion to reopen with the Second Circuit, because that's where his removal proceedings originated, and he appealed the New Jersey court's denial of his habeas case to the Third Circuit, which has jurisdiction over New Jersey. Plus, he appealed the denial of the I-212 waiver within USCIS to the Administrative Appeals Office, or AAO. Did I say that immigration is not for the faint of heart? Now, quote, because the Department of Homeland Security has a long-standing forbearance policy with the Second Circuit, Mr. Tazu will not be removed until that court resolves his petition for review, end quote. So says the third. But ultimately, that also kind of is what tanked Mr. Tazu's case before the Third Circuit, the pending petition for review in the Second Circuit. See, according to the Third Circuit, Mr. Tazu was challenging DHS's authority to execute his removal order. He wanted the court to order DHS to wait until it resolved his waiver situation. But under INA Section 242G, the only way to challenge execution of a waiver is through the petition for review process, immigration court to the BIA, and then to the circuit court. That meant, according to the Third Circuit, that it and the New Jersey District Court lacked jurisdiction to hear the habeas challenge. 
While Section 242G is a narrow jurisdictional bar, the Third Circuit believed it applied here. Therefore, and other than through the petition for review challenge, DHS, quote, may thus decide to execute Mr. Tezu's valid removal order when it chooses, end quote. And that's actually precisely what piqued Mr. Kurzban's interests. Because in explaining why it could not address Mr. Tazu's waiver-based challenges, the Third Circuit stated that, quote, the Second Circuit can consider those claims as part of a petition for review, but we cannot, end quote. The Third Circuit deemed Mr. Tazu's challenge of ICE's decision to re-detain him, including its timing in doing so during his participation in the waiver process, quote, so directly tied to the process of removal that Congress decided they should be reviewed alongside the final order of removal, end quote. Specifically, and to be clear, the Third Circuit believes that both Mr. Tazu's demand that DHS, quote, wait before removing him, end quote, and his challenge to, quote, how the government re-detained him to remove him promptly, end quote, were both claims that he, quote, can pursue before the Second Circuit, end quote, on petition for review because they're questions of law or constitutional claims. Unsure how to precisely challenge them, but the Third Circuit believes them challengeable on petition for review. You heard it here first before Ira's 18th edition. Take that, Ira. And I got more! Third Circuit also held that both INA Section 242G and Section 242B9 stripped it of jurisdiction to review Mr. Tazu's challenge to his immigration detention, deeming it a, quote, action to execute a removal order, end quote. Section 242G bars such actions from review. And the Third Circuit similarly deemed the issue as arising out of a, quote, action taken to remove a non-citizen, end quote, as subsection B9 bars from review. That's not to say that all such detentions are unreviewable, but here it was. Because ICE only re-detained Mr. Tazu because they got the passport and intended to remove him imminently, apparently. But of course, and remember, INA Section 242b9 does not foreclose a challenge to, quote, the length of his confinement, end quote. Indeed, challengeable, quote, prolonged detention suggests that removal is not reasonably foreseeable, end quote and prolonged detention can be challenged. But again, that's not what's happening here. Mr. Tazu challenged the confinement itself. And that is the very complicated Tazu v. Attorney General of the U.S. That brings us to Joe Mais v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on March 23, 2022. This case is about INA Section 237A1H waivers. Mr. Jolmice got a green card through fraud. He came to the U.S. as the unmarried son of a U.S. citizen, his father. That's a first preference visa that currently has a seven-year backlog, but it's much better than the third preference category for married sons of U.S. citizens. That backlog wait time currently sits at over 13 years. Mr. Jolmice came to the U.S. on an immigrant visa in the first preference category, the unmarried son category, but in actuality he was married. He committed fraud, albeit a fraud that he didn't need to commit to come to the U.S. if he had been willing to wait the additional time. When DHS found out, they placed him in removal proceedings. 
in removal proceedings, he applied for an INA Section 237A1H waiver, a very favorable waiver that permits IJs to waive an LPR's commission of fraud in obtaining a green card. In pertinent part, the waiver is available to a non-citizen who, quote, is the son or daughter of a citizen of the United States, end quote. And Mr. Jolmice was that, remember, his father? Well, the problem is, is that by the time of adjudication, Mr. Jolmice's father had passed away, and under the BIA's 2008 decision in matter of Federico, quote, a deceased parent is not a qualifying relative for waiver eligibility, end quote. So, an IJ denied and the BIA affirmed. But the Fourth Circuit did not. It declined to give matter of Federico Chevron deference because it believed the statute clear. There is, quote, no living parent requirement, end quote. The Fourth Circuit reasoned that the waiver statute focuses on the non-citizen and requires only that the non-citizen is the spouse, parent, son, or daughter of a U.S. citizen, or LPR for that matter. But, quote, there is no present tense verb, or any verb at all, applicable to the citizen parent, end quote. Because, quote, a still living child remains the child of a deceased parent, end quote. That makes Mr. Jolmice eligible for an INA Section 237A1H waiver. In so holding, the Fourth Circuit agreed with the Ninth Circuit in its 2010 decision, Federico v. Holder, which appears, based on the case title, to have vacated on direct petition for review the BIA's precedential decision in matter of Federico, thereby seeming to make matter of Federico an immigration review zombie precedent. Congratulations, Jennifer Sheathell Verugesi for petitioner. Any more implications? Well, it seems to me that this case, and likely the Ninth Circuit's, is expansive. I see no reason why this decision should not apply to all similarly worded waiver statutes so long as the waiver statute lacks a required showing of hardship to the qualifying relative, who, remember by definition, would have passed away, probably making a hardship showing impossible. But who knows? Then again, I can't think of another waiver statute off the top of my head that lacks a hardship requirement. Nor do I see any reason why this decision shouldn't equally apply, at least in the Section 237A1H context, to non-citizens with, God forbid, deceased U.S. citizen or LPR children. As to spouses, the Fourth Circuit pretty much extinguishes any chance that its holding could apply to LPRs who have divorced their U.S. citizen or LPR spouse. Worth a shot, though, for deceased former U.S. citizen or LPR spouse cases. And finally, how about this quote for arguing that a statute that appears ambiguous isn't ambiguous after all? Quote, Sometimes statutory silence merely reflects limits on agency discretion. For example, thou shall not kill is a mandate neither silent nor ambiguous about whether murder is permissible if committed after 5 p.m even though it's silent about what time the deed is done, end quote. And remember, everyone, no ambiguity, no Chevron deference to the BIA. And that is Joel Mice v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. 
And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.